0: Tonight's scripture reading is found on page two of your bulletins, and it's from Acts four thirty-two through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Okay, would you join me as we pray? God, we thank you for the way you've been present throughout this entire service through the words that have been said, the presence of the people next to us, the songs. And we pray now as we spend time thinking about your living word, we ask that you would do supernatural things for everybody here. In Christ's name, amen. Our city is filled with people that want to make a difference. Many, many people come for that purpose. Maybe it's a difference here. Maybe it's a difference in the nation. It's a difference in the larger world. They labor long and hard for causes such as homelessness, education, poverty. Our church is one of those organizations. And so, if that's something you have interest in, it's hard not to hear that passage read and have it not capture your imagination of that sort of community. That's why we're in the game, because it's a glimpse of, Of the world that we want. It's a glimpse of the world that we desire and we sweat and we labor for and labor toward. But how do we get it, right? That's the big question. Is it a nascent form of socialism and communism? Is that what we have here? Well, most likely not, because they are volunteering their stuff and they own their stuff. Is it we just got to be a lot better in telling our kids that they need to share? Well, it's probably more than that, right? I think your teachers and parents probably did a pretty good job on that, right? This is at a much higher level than just learning to share. Is it we just need the best and brightest leading the nonprofits? Well, I think we probably do, right? I know some of you, you seem pretty bright to me. So what is it? Well, you know, Luke inserts this little verse in the middle of this description of the community. It almost seems incidental, like a throwaway verse. He says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. What Luke is saying is that the testimony... That God had come in the flesh, that God had come to give himself for us, and that God had risen from the dead, that was the ignition for the social reform. That's what caused the social change. Now, maybe for some of you I've just lost you because you're like, okay, you had me for the first couple minutes, but if you're telling me that social reform now is dependent on me believing a myth about a resurrection, I'm out. And even believing Christians struggle with this idea. Well, let me just put an idea before you turn off. One is, when the writers themselves were bearing testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, in that day and time, they were inviting the larger society to test that testimony. Paul would say that there were only there were over 500 people that had claimed to be witnesses of Christ's resurrection alive at that time. And actually the way ancient historians worked in that day, they didn't care so much about like written testimony, they wanted eyewitness testimony. And so that's what the church is doing, they're saying test this. But also at some point you and I have to have some way to account for this movement. I mean, this sort of giving, this sort of sacrifice that went across class and race, we struggle to do that. And really, it speaks more widely to the transformation of these followers. If we had time and if you were with us throughout Holy Week, you would know that these were the very people that just days before had fled from Jesus. They were literally behind a locked door when, the Jesus, when Jesus appeared to them. And yet you find after that encounter, something changes to the point where they enter into the public square. They become bold, and many of them become martyred. The resurrection was the transforming point. And it was the event that spawned this sort of generosity and unity. And so let's just take a few minutes and think about that together. How does belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ produce generosity? Now, the longest, most in-depth reflection on the resurrection of Jesus we have is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's one of the letters the Apostle Paul wrote. And in it, he talks about not only the fact of the resurrection, but he goes into the implications of it. And as he's concluding his argument, he says these things. He says, well, first of all, you need to know that the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of God, rather, includes this world, but it also goes beyond. It, It includes the perishable world, but it also is an imperishable world. And the problem you and I have is we are perishable, we are mortal, and we can't obtain that world. We can't get there. But the problem, he says, is not just mortality, it's morality. Because in Christian theology, you have to understand that death is just not a state, it's a sentence. Death is actually a penalty for all those that transgress the great law of loving God with everything you got and loving your neighbor just as much as you'd love yourself. Now, theoretically, we all know that's good stuff. Even if you're not a believer in your God, we say, well, no, I guess it's a good thing. If God exists, you would love him. But you do know that we ought to love each other a lot better than we do. And here we are in this room. All of us are repeat offenders. There we go. All of us are repeat offenders. But this is where the goodness of the gospel comes. Because we're then told that God's response isn't just death for us, that God, rich in his mercy and an unimaginable cost to himself, comes in person as a sacrifice and an atonement to take the penalty and judgment and then he rises from the dead, which is the receipt that God received it. And this then leads Paul to this grand part of 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, I love when God orchestrates the music with passages I've chosen that Andrew and Cheryl don't even know I'm choosing. Over and over, we were singing this Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, being judged for sin. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the cheer of Christians. That they, because the Son of God has come for them, they can not only cheer and say, yes, I have victory over death, but did you catch this? This is actually standing before death and mocking it. Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend you doing that apart from Jesus, right? And most of, most of the fables and stories we have, whenever, you know, death shows up like it does with the, the skull and the, what, the scabbard and all that stuff, no one's sort of going like this, right? No one's acting bold. Only the person that's risen from the dead can mock it. Martin Luther once said, if, if Jesus, you know, there's a big controversy. Did Jesus, as the Apostles' Creed goes, did he descend into hell literally? Or, or, you know, didn't he? I don't believe he did. But Luther said, if he descended into hell, he did it to thumb his nose at the devil and to rise again at the penalty. So this is where Paul takes us, right, this climax. Now, where would you imagine his thought would go next? I mean, I would think it would be heaven. I would think it may be endurance. But you know what he talks about immediately after that? Financial generosity. That's where he goes next. After that peak of the resurrection, he talks to the Corinthian church about making a contribution to a fund to help uh, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who are suffering. The resurrection leads Paul to financial generosity. Now, I think that puzzles us. Yet the more we begin to understand resurrection, the the more we begin to get why. And let me say this. Isn't it so that one of the chief reasons, or the chief reason, rather, that you and I resort to materialism and possessions is fear of death? That's really what's behind it. What's behind materialism? It's fear of death. Uh, psychologists that work with people that hoard, you know, that hoard their possessions and can't get rid of them. They've identified that one of the primary reasons they do that is they believe that they can insulate themselves from danger of the outside world through possessions. Those possessions are really for them like a fortress, a shield. And it works the same way with you and I. With our possessions and the things we have, we somehow get this feeling, maybe it's going to protect me from what's ahead. But also, possessions give us a sense that we can be new, right? A cliche of the middle-aged man that buys the brand new motorcycle, right? This idea that if I get something young and new, it'll make me feel young. And you don't have to be middle-aged to experience it. You know, uh, those of us, maybe you've had the experience when you feel down a little bit. And you're just able to go to Amazon, right? And you buy something new. And if I buy something new, it makes me feel new. I mean, that button's just like a mini resurrection. You know, I just keep hitting it. It's going to make me feel new. It's going to make me feel alive. But you see, the resurrection, once it gets into our mind and heart, it enables us To release that. We no longer have to hold to that false facade. That false fortress. We no longer have to keep hitting that button to make ourselves new. Because we've been made anew. And we release our possessions. For good. That's what's happening in this passage. And it results as well in a more generous and communal community. That's redundant, but here it says they held everything in common. Now, I I was reading this uh, article in the Atlantic magazine, and it was uh, on the history of sharing. And it said that uh, really up until the Industrial Revolution, sharing was just a necessary regular part of culture. You can go all the way back to the hunter-gatherers. But a more contemporary example, when you would go to England or colonial America, there would be places called commons, where the poor could go and graze their animals. Does anybody know where a big common is in Washington, D.C.? The National Mall. That's what it was. And so uh, the writer in The Atlantic says this, this is different than what we call the sharing economy. The sharing economy, right, where you Airbnb, or you rent out this, or rent out that. He says this, ownership and the sharing economy is still private, everything is rented, it's not truly shared. The sharing economy might be a significant step toward more efficiently tapping into the wealth of physical things owned by individuals, not by corporations. But it's still vastly different from the kind of sharing that defined humanity for tens of thousands of years. Now, the church was by definition a culture of sharing. We're reading about it here. That's what it did. And it wasn't a culture that just functioned on Giving Tuesday or just a couple times a year or just like a superficial I'll share with you if it benefits me, but it was a sharing lifestyle. This is one of the things you'd walk into the community and you would say, man, these people share their stuff all the time. They're just always like, hey, I'm bringing this back, by the way. Hey, I'll be by to get this. You know, that's just what they do. And the reason they could do it again was because they had been delivered from the fear of death. They could be generous. They didn't have to own one of everything. They could trust one another. They could trust one another to give. But as much as the resurrection produces that sort of generosity... There's something even more fundamental in core it had to produce. Not just generosity, but unity. And that's a lot harder. We read, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own. But they had everything in common. Remember, again, this isn't socialism or communism. It was volitional. We have an example of Joseph, Barnabas. And then, if we move to the next chapter, we have the, an, a negative example Ananias, and Sapphira, a husband and wife team, who bring a gift, but they make it appear like it's more than it is. And they get judged with death. Now, this one heart and soul thing presents a real problem for us today. Um, We live in a time of unprecedented um, resources, education, access into understanding one another's cultures, money, expertise, and yet we are possibly more divided than we've ever been in our society, certainly in our country. Our city, right, is really known as the capital of division. That's what it is. So we lack the power of it, don't we? We we lack the power to have the unity in our families. We lack the power to have it among races. We lack the power even to have it among churches. But here again, the good news of the gospel comes in. Because it says not only that the Son of God lives, but he lives in you. It's not just the Son of God lives. He lives in those that believe. Now, I want you to listen closely to a prayer that Paul prays. And some of you have heard it before, and I know you might tune out. But I'm asking you to, to open up your ears in light of what we're talking about here. So Paul is doing a, I pray you'll see prayer. And he says three things. I, I pray that you'll see the hope that comes from the gospel. I pray that you'll see that you're precious to God. You're like his precious inheritance. But then he says this. And I pray that you will see what is the immeasurable greatness of his power Toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Did you catch that? There's a couple superlatives there, right? A measurable greatness of power. Working of his great might. Paul is saying, I pray with the eyes of faith you could see that that power is dwelling in you. I don't know what to say, folks, about that. I I know that, you you know, I I feel it too. I feel the clinging death in me. I feel the struggles I have. Maybe, you know, we feel the struggle to be joyful. I can't be joyful. I want to be, I struggle to be content. The struggle to overcome certain lusts. The struggles of all these struggles that we feel. Yet, God tells us, as Christ is in you, immeasurable power dwells in you. What do we do with that? Well, I think we have to wrestle with it. I mean, we could say, uh, God, I think you're wrong, but I found that that doesn't work too well. Uh, I'm usually not right. Or I could maybe say, I might not be seen on a regular basis the implications of the spiritual power that I have been given by virtue of Easter, Easter power. Now, it reminded me of an adventure film, Thor, the first Thor, okay, and uh, there's toward the end of the movie, you know, um, he is out of his Thor costume stuff because his natural powers are, his hammer's gone, he's gone, and he's just kind of dressed, kind of like I wish I could look, you know, he's dre- he's you know he's he's got these jeans, he's just a loose t-shirt, and of course, you know, he's a really handsome fella and looks great and. So anyway, but, you know, his his teammates are down on the count. They can't. he, He only has one choice. He has to face the destroyer. He has to face the destroyer without his powers. And he does that. He offers himself. He sacrifices himself. He walks in, and the destroyer just beats him to near death. I mean, I have to believe he was really Thor after that. Okay. All right. There we go. I thought, I I could hear Tom, Tom uh, Carpenter clearly going, oh. So anyway, I just had to see if you're listening, if you're awake. Anyway, so he's near dead. And then this chain of events happens. You get a glimpse of his father who's kind of in heaven. His father speaks a word. And because Thor's sacrifice was worthy... The hammer comes back to him, right? And he grabs it. It comes out of the sky and lightning shoots and he raises up. Now, it's hard not to see the Christ imagery there. Jesus goes in his natural self without his supernatural powers. He faces the destroyer. But because the Father has declared that his death is worthy, he raises up in power. But this is the difference. The hammer just doesn't go to him, it goes to us. The power goes to us. It's not just Jesus with all the power. This is what he shared. And so, you and I have to begin to ask ourselves, am I really thinking in those terms, okay? But where it really, I think, presses down, because you need two things, and I'm going to close this out on this, two things If you're really going to be unified. And these are very hard things. You need tremendous power. The first one is humility. Tremendous power to have humility. The essence of sin, we might say, is self-centeredness. That's really at the heart of all the different sins in our lives. And it's what divides us and possessions fuel it. Now, I'm not saying possessions in and of themselves are bad, but what I'm saying that possessions are often leveraged to make us self-centered and prideful. And what they do is they divide us from people. They divide us. They cause disunity. So let me give you an example of this. There was a study done uh, at University of uh, California, Berkeley. Mega told me about this, where they studied crosswalks. And they studied which cars were more prone to run through the crosswalk at the risk of pedestrians. And overwhelmingly, the data was the really rich, expensive cars. The people that really had the money had a sense of entitlement that they could go through this. It was okay for them to go through the crosswalk at the risk of other people. Because we have this ability What the more we get, we just feel like the world has smiled on us and we're empowered and entitled. Jesus said in his parable of the rich fool, the fool says to himself, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. What he's saying there is, listen, you deserve it. You've got all its possessions, and you know what you worked for it. Prosperity easily leads to meritocracy. Meritocracy is the belief that I have this stuff for a reason. Because I worked harder than everybody else. I worked a little bit harder. God had to warn Israel about this. He said, uh, God had delivered Israel from death. The death of the Passover. The death of the Red Sea. The death of the wilderness. But before they went into the promised land, he said, I'm about ready to lead you into a promised land where you will lack nothing. You will have everything that you need. And he said this, but a secret voice is going to speak in your heart. He says, in your heart you'll say, you know, that voice that nobody else hears, my power and my might have gotten me this wealth. He said you're going to be tempted to do that, and that's exactly what happens. And you know what the result is? Injustice. The society becomes unjust. The poor are oppressed. Orphans are oppressed. Widows are oppressed because of a sense of entitlement. So how does the resurrection disarm that? Well, just the very fact of the resurrection tells me that I have embraced the fact that I was dead. I was dead in sin. Dead in self-centeredness. Dead in injustice, in selfishness. Even my good days and the things I do, I do them for myself. Even after I've helped someone, there's this secret, aren't I great? toxic. I was dead and I got raised to life and it was not by myself. It was by the Son of God, by grace, as the passage says. The power of resurrection by grace. And at that point, I look at my stuff differently. I look at it with humility. And I share it And the way I relate to people in society is different. But there's a second part of this too. Finally, it's not just we need power for humility. We need great power just to feel secure. Because we do so much stuff out of anxiety and insecurity. Now, Paul is giving some instructions to Timothy, and he's basically saying he's giving him the ingredients how to be an Acts 4 community. Because he wants more of the Acts 4 communities. And he says, you know, to those that have resources, which would be most of us in the room, I want you to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share. That's Acts 4. But then he tells us how you get there. Two things. He says, first of all, I want you to set your hope not on your possessions but on your provider. Who gives you everything for your enjoyment. I think it's wonderful that God says in that passage, by the way, I'm glad you enjoy the stuff you've been given. We need to know that. You know, it's easy to swing to the other side and think, well, I'm supposed to feel guilty for every good gift. Every good gift that God has given you is to be consecrated with thanksgiving. One of the ways it will keep you and I away from materialism and going to possessions is when we give thanks for things. Right? It sanctifies them. We want to share them. He's just saying, be joyful, but just share the joy, won't you? Share it with people. But he's also saying... I want you to shift your mind, so I want, I want to ask you the question. When you are worried about your future, where does your mind land? Maybe it's your financial future. Is it your investments? Is it your retirement? Is it the fact that you need to start climbing faster? Where do you set your mind? Because he's saying, because of the resurrection, I want you to set your mind on your provider. You have a Father that will take care of you. And here's the thing. When you and I are the architects of our own enjoyment, we just become self-focused. We spend it on ourselves. We don't think of other people. In Luke 14, Jesus says, listen, uh, when you have a feast, I don't want you to invite people that can pay you back emotionally, socially, or career-wise. I don't want you to invite people like that. Instead, I want you to invite people that really can't give you anything back that way. Invite the poor, crippled, lame, the blind. Why? For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. It takes security to host people that aren't like you. When we have dinners and we invite people just like us, it's because we feel secure with them. We like them, we feel safe with them. But when we open up the table to strangers and people that are different than us and we don't know how to react to, we need a different power for that. We need the resurrection power of Christ. But then he exhorts us to say, I want you to seek a foundation for the future and take hold of that which is truly life. Now, you know, Meg and I were probably slow on the, uh, you know, I could blame it on lots of things. But that's, that's not a good use of your time. Um, but, you know, when it came to thinking about our future, it basically, basically was age that got me thinking about it. And thankfully, I've, I've got this friend of mine, a pastor's group, and he's one of the heads-up in the PCA's retirement benefits thing. And one day he said, uh, okay, we're going to meet for our yearly meeting to have fun, but I have the goods on all you guys. And I want to help you so that you don't end up impoverished, more so I don't really care about you, but your wives I care about. And I want to see your numbers, and we're going to talk, and we're going to plan. And so we've been doing this the last couple years, and I'll tell you, it's, I'm starting to feel encouraged. You know, I'm like, you know, so I was talking to him one day, and I'm like, wow, yeah, so if we do that, and maybe if that, you know, we, we won't have to, like, move out of the city. Or we won't have, you know, we might be able to stay here, and, and, uh, and my mind starts to race to just all that good stuff, like, man, I'll just kind of, you know, just retirement dreams, you know? And I'm sort of saying this stuff out loud, and then he interrupts me and says, well, you know, the reason why uh, we want to see this happen for you is so you will be freed up to do more ministry in your retirement years. (laughs) I was like, ministry? That's what I'm doing now, man. You know, that... But I think what he was trying to say is, listen, you want to have life. I want a future for you that takes hold of life, not death. And life means living in the kingdom of God until the very end. Not hoarding generosity, but living it. And when we talk about the afterlife, my friends, I mean... You know, the afterlife, in the Christian view, is not just a matter of, you know, it's not just uh, time. It's not a time change. It's a character change. Have you ever thought about this? What if the afterlife is no different than this? Still reading the same newspaper stories? Like, what makes people think that it's magically going to be better? Just because we die, we get better? Like the person was a rat when you knew him, Like, you know, five seconds they died and now they're going to just like pop to the other side. Good. What makes us think it's going to be better on the other side? If you're just thinking about afterlife, I mean, don't waste your time. But in the Christian faith, we're not talking about just afterlife. We're talking about resurrection. We're talking about the renewal of all things. Because the Son of God doesn't just give you more years in your life. He changes you. He transforms you with his power. And so Project Earth starts over again, the way it should have been, where we develop things and make things fruitful without exploiting them, where we don't kill our brother for the better sacrifice, where we actually find ourselves in this sort of community. This is a snapshot of what will be. I mean, that's heaven. That's what the resurrection does. It's a foretaste. So we, by God's great power, he wants us to experience this foretaste and then he wants our city to experience it. So they can look through the window and go, that's what's lying on the other side. It's that where people are generous and free and they're no needy and people are cared for and loved and and so, the resurrection means lots of things. One of the things it means is social reform. And one of the things it means for our city is hope. Let's pray that we can rely on it and live into it. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for the many splendored Uh, graces of Christ's resurrection. It's not only our receipt that we are guiltless and free and forgiven, but it's our hope for the problems of our city. Would you help all of us to see the power? I pray for any that have not embraced your resurrection yet, that they would, so that they might live.